Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be part of this uh, program. And, you know, as I was listening to um, uh, Rod, Rod, um, this morning, uh, and I was listening to my uh, bio being read there, I was thinking about how actually, in many respects, I just consider myself an evangelist. Because my concern for all of my ministry life, since I was about uh, 21, has been helping, wanting to help people understand the meaning of the gospel. Whether it's been in the form of apologetics, or uh, cultural philosophy, or in my uh, pastoral ministry. I was one of those uh, children who did grow up as a, as a PK, the pastor's kid, and as an MK. My parents were... Uh, I wasn't quite sure where to put my hand up there this morning, Rod, um, because uh, my dad was a pastor, but then they were also missionaries in Pakistan for 17 years. And uh, I too made the vow that I would never become a pastor. <laughs> so it was interesting listening to that. Um, I ended up in pastoral ministry first in London, in England, in West London for three years. Then I was working with Rabbi Zacharias for seven years. And then I founded Westminster Chapel in Toronto. I wish I had time to talk a bit about that story and how the Ezra Institute came about and our new centre. Maybe I'll say something a little bit about that um, in the second session at the end, uh, the, the study centre that God's given us and the work that we're doing there. But for this morning, um, I've got these two sessions and I want to talk about creation and the kingdom of God. When we were discussing this event, one of the things we talked about as uh, ministry leaders was how we can help um, God's people better understand the significance of the uh, doctrine of creation, the creation idea, the creation law idea, and its meaning. It isn't just about a, a debate between scientists about origins, uh, creation, evolution. As we've heard already yesterday and today, it's about the authority of Scripture, for one. It's about truth. And it's also about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. And uh, that's the connection that I want to make in these two sessions. So if you have a Bible or one of those infernal digital devices with a Bible on it, turn to Psalm 19 and we'll read. I just want to read Psalm 19 to kick us off. And listen closely to, to these words. I'm, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a groom coming from the bridal chamber. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, 
renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me, and then I will be innocent and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Psalm 19, it's a, it's a remarkable passage of scripture. It's not a scientific treatise. I'm going to talk about the, the, the meaning of scientific theory in a minute. Um, it's the word of God. It transcends uh, all theoretical thinking. It transcends all theoretical thinking because it's the word of God. And Psalm 19 witnesses uh, to creation and to scripture. Notice how seamlessly the psalmist does it. In one moment, he's talking about the creation and the heat of the sun. In the next minute, he's talking about the law of God and the renewal of one's life. And in the next moment, he's confessing his sin. So there is a profound connection between the creation word and the inscripturated word. Creation and also the word of redemption. There's a unified witness of creation and scripture so that God's words work. God's words work and his word speaks. God's word is always working and his works speak. When I was uh, getting ready for this lecture, I was looking out of my study window. I have, by God's grace, a beautiful study, I must say. And it, uh, as I look out of my study window at the uh, Esri Institute, I'm looking out over the Niagara Escarpment and over Lake Ontario. And uh, this is a beautiful time of the year, isn't it? The fall. I mean, some people say that the fall is their favorite time of the year in Ontario because of the vibrancy of the colors. And the different colors are leaping out at me across the Niagara Escarpment. It's a tranquil scene, you know, yellow leaves are fluttering down off the trees in the wind because we're quite high up. And as I was sat there, I was reminded of the inviolate order and structure of God's creation, the, un the unassuming regularity of it all, just going on all of the time. 
no speech, and yet their voice is heard to the ends of the earth. The beauty and regularity of it all. Everywhere you look, the shortening of the days, the colour transformation all around us, the hurried activity of the squirrels and the chipmunks getting ready for the winter. Creation constantly reveals that it is subject to the word of God. It reveals that it is subject to the word of God. Think about the myriad of insects right now clearing up the debris on the forest floor. It's all going on right now. Or the constant activity in every cell of your body right now, clearing up the mess, rebuilding things. For some of us it's working better than others now. <laughs> Tidying up our bodies, trying to prevent us from becoming sick, ill. It's that that actually enables us to experience all of these marvels every day. That all this work by the Word of God is going on at every moment. All things move in cosmic time in terms of a pattern and purpose by the ordinance of God. So it's actually quite difficult, isn't it, to fathom the mentality of people who can look out on a fall day in Ontario and say to themselves that the world, the creation, is nothing but happenstance. They rationalize creation away into emptiness. The Bible says in the futility of their thoughts. That might be pan-vitalism. Pan-vitalism means basically everything is alive, and so they have the problem of death. So they say that, well, the universe is some sort of living organism, and so what they can't figure out is what death means. For others, it's pan-mechanism. And that's everything's really dead. Uh, it's a big machine, so they have the problem of life. One set of critics has the problem of death, the other has the problem of life. Yet the interesting thing is, living things are made up with things that are not alive. You ever thought about that? Right? An atom, which you no, no physicist would say atoms are alive, at least very few would. You know, every cell in your body is made up of a variety of these atoms. So how is it that dead things make up life? Just a little reflection actually reveals that every day of your life is a masterpiece and a miracle. A masterpiece and a miracle. Especially the life of human beings, God's image bearers, the pinnacle of creation. There's a brilliant, my favorite singer actually. He's blind, he's an opera singer, Andre Bocelli, he's a Christian man. He said this, every life is a work of art, and if it does not seem so, perhaps it is only necessary to illuminate the room that contains it. 
The secret is never to lose faith, to have confidence in God's plan for us, revealed in the signs with which he shows us the way. And never forget that there's no such thing as happenstance. That's an illusion lawless and arrogant men invented so that they could sacrifice the truth of our world to the laws of reason. You know, Scripture teaches concerning the true character of God's cosmic work of art, especially the special creation of humanity. This, this, Bible, this scriptural teaching is actually amazingly neglected by the modern church. Right? The, the mind boggles that this would be a neglected teaching. One of the most foundational teachings, creation by the triune God, which is the foundation for the message of redemption, that that should be rejected or neglected is certainly the sleight of hand of the enemy of our souls. This inattention, actually, has contributed to the crisis of our understanding of human identity. People don't know today what a human being is, in case you haven't noticed. The BBC has just produced a documentary to be used in all schools in England, teaching children that there are 60 gender identities. Six, zero. We have uh, unprecedented levels of depression, what's termed mental illness. There's another suicide at UMT recently among young people who do not know who they are or what they are. It's not just a crisis of human identity, but it's then the decay of culture around us as the assault on man as God's image bearer in the name of autonomous reason has continued unabated and largely, actually, unchallenged. So what the Christian family and what the Christian church and what the Christian school believe and teach about creation is actually critical because it determines both how we understand and live in the cosmos that God has created. Compromise with the doctrine of creation has actually always led to an undermining of the church's confidence in the sovereign power of God, the scriptural view of the human person as God's image bearers, as cultural beings, and consequently it's undermined the doctrine of the kingdom of God. Because if you don't really know what a human being is, as God's image bearer, and therefore as a being made to have dominion, to create culture, then you do not know, you cannot connect creation and the kingdom of God. The rule of God, the reign of God. So there's never been a more important moment, I think, for God's people to affirm and to defend the marvel and mystery of creation with human beings as God's image bearers and kingdom builders. 
Let's take a moment to turn to another passage of Scripture as we think about creation then through Christ's powerful word. So we all know we have the, and it's been referred to already, we have the singular, we have the unique, remarkable account of creation given in Genesis 1 and 2. It sets out the power and wisdom of God in creating this incredible marvel, an ordered cosmos. And we read there of the creation of all things from nothing. And specifically, the distinctions, the specific distinctions placed by God within the created order. That's actually one of the things that's most obvious about the text of Genesis, is that it makes clear distinctions for us, that God is established by his ordinances within creation. We have the unique creation of human beings that are different in kind from minerals and vegetables and animal life. You know, even Christians have the habit of referring to human beings as mammals. We're not mammals. We're human beings. There's an important distinction between simply mammals and a human being. It's not only Genesis that speaks about creation through the powerful word of God. It's actually easy for us to see the Son of God personified as wisdom in Proverbs 8. Let's look at that. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and where there, uh, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a serpent on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Notice here, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. <coughs> this is not a model physicist description of creation. Now, one of the reasons the scriptures were never written like that was because they looked incredibly foolish to us if they were written in terms of the physics of ancient Egypt and to the generations that come after us if they were written in our contemporary scientific language, they also look ignorant, outdated, and foolish. The Bible does not contain theories. There are no theories in the Bible. Scripture is the word of God. Theories can be disproven. That's why they're called theories. You start with a hypothesis, 
If there's enough support for that hypothesis, it's called a theory. And theories are being overturned all of the time. The whole history of science is the history of the overturning of human theories. Scripture doesn't contain theories, it's the Word of God. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture. I particularly like the fact that the personified word wisdom of God in creation delights in the inhabited world and takes delight in humanity. Rejoices in it. This is like the uh, the victory and rejoicing, the rest and victory of God on the seventh day of creation. The rest of God is the victory of God. It's the completion of God. Now in verse 22, we read the word possessed. He possessed me. Just go back there a second. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Well, interestingly enough, this is significant because it can actually be translated begot. The Lord begot me at the beginning of his work. And that's significant because in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul twice refers to Christ as the firstborn. The firstborn. Some people get confused by that. They think, well, is Paul saying that the Son is a created being? But actually what Paul says here, if you look at it closely, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's exactly what Proverbs was saying. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in a few things. Oh, sorry, I misread that. In everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile bits and pieces to himself. Everything to himself. Making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's just go back there a minute. So he's the firstborn over all creation, which means he has absolute priority. We don't know God's law, actually, we struggle to understand this, because the firstborn is the one who inherits all all things. The firstborn is the inheritor. He He takes priority. Okay, so this is a, uh, uh, an image that Paul is using here to take us back to the Old Testament to recognize the priority of Christ. So he's firstborn, Paul says, an heir. He's the inheritor of all things, but he's also the firstborn from the dead, which means he has priority in redemption. So he has priority in creation, and he has priority in redemption. He points, in other words, to the destiny of redeemed humanity in the resurrection life. 
And Paul affirms that all things in the entire cosmos, the visible things, things that you can see, the invisible things, the things that you can't see, that would include the things that are those powerful microscopes you can't see, but it would also include things like numbers, laws, norms, things that are there, that are real, but we can't see them. Visible and invisible. All powers, all authorities, heavenly and earthly, Paul says, are created through and for Christ. The same thought is reiterated by Paul in Ephesians 1, 7 through 23. In Romans 11, 36, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now it's actually really important to tease out the profundity of that theme. It reveals that Christ is the mediator of the totality of everything that exists. So if we're talking about creation, we're not talking about some, you know, oh, that's just a secondary issue, brother. That's not a gospel issue, brother. Really? It's not a gospel issue? It's not a first order issue? in conflict with the whole history of the church to say something like that. Because Christ is the mediator today of the totality of all of creation. Everything was created through him. Amongst many other implications, of course, that means we're all accountable to Christ the Creator. Yet it's not simply that Christ is the one through whom all things were made, because he's, he's also the one to whom they all belong. All things were made for him. They were made through him. They were made for him. In other words, he is the reason and the end of all things. We heard it this morning. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the essence of their meaning, fullness. The essence of their meaning, fullness. Creation is full of meaning. Paul tells us Christ is the one in whom all things hold together, consist. You know, the ancients were looking for the, uh, in alchemy, they were looking for that uh, philosopher's stone. The, the 
the origin of all things today, they talk about the God particle. There is no such thing. Christ is the one in whom all things consist. It's held together by his powerful word. You can't give a scientific description of that. You can't give a theoretical description of that. So if you pull those threads together, the scriptures teach us that creation itself is an instantiation or a concretization of the powerful word of God. The concretization, the, an instantiation of the powerful word of God. Moment by moment, day by day, year after year, creation is upheld, sustained, directed, and subject to his powerful word. Think about the famous opening to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Oh, it's not a first order gospel issue, brother. Oh, why is it at the beginning of John's gospel then? It's right there. Think about the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, same thing, heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's not a first order issue, brother. Really? Not a gospel issue? You see, this marvelous mediating function of the word of God is seen everywhere. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which do appear. In other words, there is nothing in creation that can function as a resting point that we can say, this is the source and origin of all things. This tells us creation is literally unthinkable apart from the living word of God by whom all things are created, preserved, and directed. In other words, friends, Jesus Christ is the key to the meaning of creation. Jesus Christ. And the fathers of the church recognize this. Is a portion of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And don't forget, it also says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Both the incarnation and the resurrection are God's affirmation of the totality of creation. 
his affirmation of the very good that he pronounced at the end of his work. Too many Christians think that uh, the goal of the Christian life is to escape the earth, to escape creation into a better place. Well, maybe we'll pick this up in Q&A, but uh, that's not a biblical idea. Creation is your home. You know, this creation is the only one there is or ever will be. It's going to be released from its bondage to corruption. It's going to be cleansed of all sin and evil. Yeah, Paul tells us that in Romans 8. But uh, whether you like it or not, this dust that you're in right now is going to be raised. And it's going to be glorified, but it's going to be raised. And this is the affirmation of the early church. Look at the Nicene Creed. This is an English translation of the Armenian text, which I particularly like. It's got a little bit more detail. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body, and sat at the right hand of the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead of his kingdom. There is no end. This is the ecumenical confessions of the church. It doesn't matter if you're Anglican, Pentecostal, Baptist, Presbyterian. These are, this is the root of our faith. This is the confession of the early church. Notice the connection here between creation, resurrection, and the kingdom of God. They stand in a confessional continuum together. So there is no room in Scripture, in the biblical worldview, to, for us to begin our thinking about creation by synthesizing the biblical picture with paganism. With paganism. Stated in modern scientific jargon, the pagan view holds that at some infinite point of density, matter energy is somehow eternal. So you have a divinity concept. We have what the philosopher Roy Clauser calls a divine per se. You have a stand-in for the eternal God. You have an eternal idea of matter and energy. Via a quantum fluctuation of a vacuum, everything existing spontaneously evolved through innumerable stages of development over inconceivable eons of time. A scenario which, following any biogenesis, whether you conceive that theistically or not, that is life arising from non-life, after countless millennia of death, disease, mutation, suffering, a group of higher hominids finally appears 
develop self-consciousness and cultural awareness, and then the theistic evolutionists say, we're elected by God to be our progenitors. Now, where is the submission to scripture in that idolatrous scenario? There isn't any. Are we really to believe that these ideas square with God's wisdom and omnipotence? Can be reconciled with the special creation of man and woman as God's image bearers? That such a process could have been declared very good as a manifestation of God's power and will and goodness. And how might such a process be spun into a revelation of Christ? Through whom, and to whom, and by whom all things exist. Such a process, I put it to you, is not the work of the eternal Son, the mediator of creation, who by his powerful word calmed the storm, healed the lepers instantly, turned water to wine, raised Jairus' daughter, healed the centurion servant with a word. He says, I'm not worthy to come into you, for you to come to my house. Just say the word. And at that very hour, Jesus says, I have not seen such great faith in all Israel. Christ sends his word. The word of God. This is the Christ who commanded Lazarus, whose brain had turned to liquid mush, who stank, according to the Bible. By the way, remember, Jesus did not get to the tomb of Lazarus and say, isn't this wonderful, he's gone to a better place. Oh, he's gone to his reward. Now actually, the, the Greek text tells us that Jesus was angry. Deeply angry. And then when he got to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. Because death is, the, is an enemy. And Jesus was angry with that enemy. Paul says it's the last enemy to be defeated. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. So it wasn't party poppers and champagne that Lazarus had gone to a better place because he believed Jesus. No. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And then he commanded a man whose brain was now mush to come out. And that man came out, all of his memories intact. Didn't take a million years. He consented his word and he came out. This same Christ will raise you and me from the dust of the earth, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye, you shall be changed. And God sends his word. Now, of course, there are many professing Christians who convince themselves that there needs to be some form of reconciliation of these antithetical religious premises, and they have to accomplish that. They're wrong. As simple as that. When we observe 
creation. You're not looking at a revelation of chance and chaos. You're not looking at some mysterious entelechy that's some kind of internal law that's operating under its own power. We are contemplating an aspect of God's word revelation through the Son. In creation, we're actually able to discern God's laws for creation. That's part of the cultural mandate. You know, when Adam and Eve are there in the Garden of God, I should imagine after a few nights, Eve said, it gets a bit chilly you know, by the early morning. It's a bit damp on the ground. Do you want to build something for us, Adam? And as you look at the development of Genesis, you see metallurgy begins to be developed and animal husbandry and so on. And then we see cities being built, kingdoms being established. You know, creation does not come to us shrink-wrapped, microwavable. Right? We have to do something with it. We have to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture. Adam and Eve were put there to tend and to keep. To worship and to serve as a royal priesthood in God's creation temple. Interestingly, the tabernacle is really a copy of Eden. You know, the cherubim guarding the presence of God, all the decorations on the priest's robes. And a man, a priest, goes into the Holy of Holies to, to worship and to serve. And now we are, according to Peter, a royal, a kingly priesthood. We'll come to that in the next session in some detail. But there are laws for creation and norms of God's creational word for life that we can discern in creation as we are illuminated by the scriptures. So biblical authority does not mean that we say to your young Christian, if they're becoming a doctor or a, or a veterinarian or a lawyer or whatever it may be, that all they have to do is look up the relevant passage in the Bible. They don't need to go to medical school. You know, frankly, I don't want to be worked on by such an individual if I ever have to go under the knife. Because scripture does not give us an encyclopedia of human anatomy. It's part of the cultural mandate that in light of the word of God, we go to creation and discover the laws and norms that God has established for it. That's part of our task. The law word for creation through Christ is inaudible, it's invisible, yet we discern its effects. So creation actually is meaning. That may be an unusual expression for you, but uh, let me unpack it a little bit in these last few minutes. Creation is meaning. It's possible, of course, to suppress and pervert and ignore God's revelation within creation, and people do. Expressing some of that, God's word, this distortion of God's word reveling creation because of our fallen condition. Some of the Greco-Roman philosophers held that all things were held together by Zeus. Zeus was a being who was not distinct from creation. 
All the gods of the pagan world are stationed inside the universe. They don't transcend creation. Other philosophers said, no, an abstract concept of divine reason, logos, that holds everything together. And ever since, still today in the West, unbelievers seek an imminent solution to the meaning of all things. That is, a solution that's imminent within creation. From the mythical gods to mind or reason or feeling or numbers. You know, the Pythagoreans sang hymns, they worshipped numbers, they composed hymns to numbers. I've read one of their hymns to the number 10. You know, they thought fractions were the root of all things. Matter and energy, some say, is the basic denominator. They look for an explainer, something created to account for everything else. Yet scripture and creation itself make plain that no philosophy, no theology, no science can establish the meaning of things. Philosophy is a science, it's a theoretical discipline. The earth sciences are disciplines, they're theoretical disciplines. You know, theology is also a theoretical discipline. There are a lot of bad theologians out there. Right? Theology is not the Bible. Theology and scripture are different things. Now, we need the labors of uh, diligent, faithful, God-honoring theologians who work honestly with Scripture in the way that when you go to the doctor, you need faithful, God-honoring medical professionals who take the human body seriously. This is why one of the areas of pushback a bit on some of this gender identity stuff is your medical doctors. So we can't pretend that the human person is something other than they are. Not as much pushback as I'd like, but there's some. So no theology, even, just because Baldwin and Barthes and Brunner were thought as of great theologians, does not mean that we have to follow what they say. Theology does not establish the meaning of things. Philosophy doesn't establish. Science does not establish the meaning of things. Because the meaning of all things is already given with creation. You don't need science to carry on with your daily life. You don't need a physicist's analysis of, you know, walking to breakfast this morning. You just got out of bed and you came to breakfast. And all scientific activity presupposes this non-theoretical, non-scientific, ordinary experience of everyday life in God's creation. Ours is a designed, ordered, predefined world. There are no brute, uninterpreted facts. There are no things in themselves awaiting being given a meaning by you or me. We do not inhabit a plastic world where man can redefine himself or anything in terms of his own imagination. All true meaning is grounded in Christ and his creation. The creation is meaning. It doesn't have a meaning. 
It isn't lent a meaning. You don't give it a meaning. Theologians, philosophers, and scientists don't give it a meaning. It is meaning. By virtue of creation. Christian theologian Gordon Spikeman puts it this way. He says, all scientific endeavor is therefore a discovery process. In acquiring knowledge, whether theoretical or practical, we are always and only responding creatures set within ordered surroundings of a stable but not static and unfolding but not evolving cosmos. Scientific inquiry is therefore a limited, humble, subservient, tentative undertaking. It can only describe by empirical analysis the data and phenomena at hand. Its tools cannot penetrate to an original and fundamental explanation of the meaning of things. For this we are dependent on revelation reflexively present in creation and noetically disclosed in scripture. Creation does not merely have such meaning, which we are at liberty to reckon with or not, nor does it await our attempts to limit meaning. Creation is meaning. It is therefore meaningful or full of meaning. That's why we discover meaning in everything. This is a critical insight because of Christ's creating and redeeming word, and we should pay more attention to it. In each area of life, God has established his kingdom law order. In every area of life, placing all things in relationship to everything else, from your plant and insect life, to animals and human life, to social structures, marriage and family, human society and culture, there is an intricate interdependence it means that neither the cosmos as a whole nor any particular part of it is self-sufficient. Nothing exists by and for itself. Can you imagine any entity or thing existing by itself and for itself? No, everything exists in an unbreakable coherence with everything else. Another way of expressing this thought is that each aspect of reality points beyond itself to all the other aspects of reality. You can't imagine an insect in a vacuum, unrelated to anything else. The meaning of an insect is bound up with the totality of its function within creation. Each aspect points back to all the other aspects, and creation as a whole refers us back to the Creator. Let me illustrate. The physicist Isaac Newton was once asked, what is gravity? His answer was profound. He says, I don't know. I don't know. The American Nobel Prize winning chemist, Linus Pauling, said the same when he was asked, what is a chemical bond? I don't know. Charles Augustine de Cologne, a physicist noted for Cologne's law, groundbreaking work on electrostatic forces, he refused to define, even try to define, electricity. And the reason being, all these concepts represent 
functions of created things, but they have no is, they have no independent existence. They're intricately bound to the totality of created reality. God, you see, has placed everything in all creation in relationship to all other things, most especially man in relationship to others and with himself. So that creation is meaning. None of it is self-sufficient, it's given meaning by virtue of creation by God. God alone is self-sufficient. This is why you this is why God, when he speaks to Moses, when he's asked his name, naming is about defining something. You name something, you define it. You have a taxonomic definition, you define things by naming them. Even when Adam saw a woman, he named her. She shall be called Eve, because she was taken out of man. She should be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Eve means mother of all living. Names are definitions. God said, Moses says to God, who shall I say is sending me? Give me a definition. But God is the source of all definition. He can't be defined. He's beyond meaning in that sense. Everything created is meaning. Paul puts it this way, he says that, that, that every family in heaven and earth is named by the Father. Very quickly, in my last two minutes, what's the significance of all of this? Well, the meaning character of reality indicates that all creation is relative, whereas God alone is absolute. Relative just needs to be related back to something. Well, God is absolute. He's the self-sufficient triune God. He's not related back to anything beyond himself. He's not relative. He's absolute. But creation and everything in it is related back to God. They exist for his glory and for his kingdom purposes in terms of his law, his purpose, and his reign. So any attempt to absolutize, to lift out an aspect of creation as though it could be a final point of explanation, a resting point in creation, whether it's matter or energy or number or thinking or feeling or culture or anything, Paul says is idolatry, Romans 1. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know what this, the wonderful result of this means? That every part of created reality in which our life participates, all of these aspects of meaning, no part of creation can actually be devalued or made inferior to any other part. Every aspect of the totality of created reality is meaning. It is significant and is full of meaning. You can't say, well, my soul is more important than my body. Who says? Have you ever done any thinking or feeling or running or eating or anything in life without your body? No, you haven't. The totality of created reality is full of meaning and is significant. The fullness or totality of meaning is found in Christ. Let me close with this illustration here. Think about a prism. A single shaft of light 
passes through in prism, and it's refracted into a diversity of rays. You've got seven bands of color there. Each band is a dependent refraction of white light. You can't think of any one band of color there as the sum of all the other colors. Like they're all dependent refractions of white light, and they exist in an unbreakable coherence. If you block white light going through that prism, all of those colors will vanish into nothing. And yet white light isn't found in any of the refracted colors. So the prism represents time in which everything functions, and the non-refracted light represents a totality to which all of the refracted light points. And just as light has its origin in a light source, so the cosmos takes its rise from the origin by whom and for whom it was created. God's decree for creation is refracted into a multiplicity of binding, authoritative words for all the spheres of created reality. In time, from the invisible cellular structure of your body to the binding laws that numerous microscopic machines in your cells perform each moment, to the creational norms for human sexuality, marriage, family, work, learning, rest, from the physiological structure of the blue whale to the abstract mathematical logical laws and invisible laws of aesthetic value, from the structure of spiritual principalities and angelic beings to the law order God has for the state and human culture, Christ's word sustains and governs it all. So the creation and kingdom are bound together, totally. All the varied laws, norms, and structures for creation hold firm despite sin in the world. That is the norms God has established for creation, even though people break them and violate them. Without this scriptural commitment to creation as God's law, order, as his kingdom, which he is where he's bringing everything into subjection, there is no meaning in anything, and it all disappears into nothingness. Creation and redemption stand together in a breakable historical continuum. Christ is creator, friends, before he is your redeemer. He's creator before he is redeemer. And therefore his coming concerns the restoration of the totality of his creation order, bringing all things into subjection as his kingdom and dominion through his redeemed people. I'm done. So over to Matt, I think there's a bit of opportunity for discussion and questions through there. Um, and I'll be back after lunch. Well, that was fantastic, Joe. Thanks so much. Well, we are really blessed to have Joe with us. Uh,